0: Welcome to The Right Podcast, a podcast providing innovative and inspirational dental education to dentists, specialists, and their teams worldwide. Each fortnight, we deliver relevant content covering procedures, educational opportunities, and interviews with rock stars from the dental world. As we explore the successes and failures of dentistry, learn practical tips and expert advice to help you become a better dental professional. So hello everyone and welcome to this edition of Right Podcast. This is not Lincoln Harris, he hasn't lost his voice or changed it or anything. Um, this is, I'm, my name is Dr. Mike Melkers coming to you from Hanover, New Hampshire here in the United States and I had the pleasure to have a dear, dear friend, Dr. Brooke Blitcher with me this evening. Uh, Brooke is an endodontist actually right here in the area. Well, she's in Vermont, but where we live, that means she's a mile away. So welcome, Brooke, and uh, thanks for coming on with us.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike. It's great to be here from, from my house in Norwich, yeah. Vermont.
0: <laughs> well, we're spending a lot of times in our houses these days, aren't we?
1: We certainly are, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: We so like our Brooke,
0: houses. <laughs> so Brooke, tell us, tell us a little bit, share with the listeners a little bit about uh, your background and your schooling and, and just a little bit of your brief history.
1: Um, okay. So I um, trained at Harvard Dental School um, and then did my endodontics residency at Tufts. Mm -hmm. Um, following that, I moved up to Vermont, um, because my husband could imagine himself living nowhere else as a lifelong Vermonter. Um, and I also happened to find a really fantastic mentor, um, whose practice I joined. Um, so I've been in private practice here since, um, 2009. Um, I still, where, where we live, we're only um, two hours away from Boston,
0: so, I'm sure you, you must get this one a lot. You said you, uh, you, know, you you went to Harvard and you did your residency at Tufts, but uh, you went to Colgate for- uh, I did
1: go to Colgate. For, I, I should not forget Colgate because Colgate is where I met my husband. It's near and dear to my heart. Um, it is not a dental school. Um, I was going to ask, and, a, a, and I'm
0: sure you've never heard a joke about uh, the university being named Colgate and you being a dentist.
1: There, there is some connection with the colgate Palmala family. I think it's that some money was donated a million years ago. It used to be the college was called something else, um, which the name escapes me. And the Colgate family made a large donation and got the, the name and have diverged really since. Um, there were two of us in my class, I think, that went into dentistry. So it's a small liberal arts college. Uh, they have a strong science program. Um, There is a study abroad program at the NIH that was kind of one of the major draws for me going to Colgate. Um, So it is, it's a fantastic place to be. But I went there and then went straight into Harvard Dental um, from that point, which was also a very small school.
0: Very cool. So, uh, you you know, I got you out of university, got you out of of, uh, the endodontic Residency, you've published, you've authored a textbook, you do research, you're co-founder of a of an educational uh, foundation, pulp nonfiction. So you're so you're a little bit of an underachiever. I'm I'm, I'm noticing this uh, little trend going on here.
1: I don't really sit still very well, which is why the next few weeks will be very interesting oh, yeah, <laughs> for me.
0: Well, when when we look at uh, when we look at your history, and we look at you being an endodontist, endodontists are, are are pretty incredible, and they're pretty famous for finding things that that others can't. And one of the things that I think that that you found was a really amazing first opportunity. Can you tell us about how you came to came to Norwich and how you found Dr. Dresser?
1: I graduated from dental school or from residency, rather, in 2009, which was um, a fraught time, uh, economy wise. Uh, I was looking for jobs at that point in Boston in New Jersey and in New England to keep my husband happy. Northern New England, I should say. Um, And connected with through, through a family friend. I think a lot of these connections are Happenstance, uh, but had a family friend who worked in uh, the dental supply world, essentially, mm-hmm. and went in Vermont on my behalf because I said I'm interested in Vermont. He went on my behalf to all all of the endodontists in the state of Vermont and asked them if they'd be interested in hiring someone during a recession. <laughs> Um, Now, thankfully, there were only eight endodontists in the state of Vermont, so this wasn't like a Herculean task for him, Um, but this gentleman uh, connected me with John Dresser, who was, you know, in the late stages of his career, thinking about maybe retiring, nervous about it because of the economic time um, that we were in, but agreed to meet me and We did, you know, a couple of the dinners out, um, really liked each other, had similar practice philosophies. I wanted to learn from someone. He wanted to teach someone and not just hand his practice over. Um, And, you know, there was some anxiety on both our behalves just entering into this relationship. But Uh we... It it went well, um, which, you know, I I know, and (laughs) we could talk about this if you want. It doesn't always go so well, bringing in associates, but in our case, it worked out swimmingly. And he is still a dear friend of mine um, who I call, despite him having retired from our office five years ago at this point, um, he's still somebody that I ask questions, you know, on a monthly basis or so of, Uh how would you handle this? How, you know, let me tell you about this really cool case I saw. Um, he's just a, a, he's a great mentor. Great. Um,
0: well, so, then, I think. so when you, when you transitioned to, you know, to buying into John's practice, what, what kind of practice vision did you see? What, what did you take from John? But what also did you create yourself? What, what was your special vision that moved from it being John Dresser's practice to yours?
1: There there were some major physical changes in the office. Um, Mike, I can't remember if you ever saw our old space, but John was No, but I was... heard
0: stories I've heard
1: stories. <laughs> so he had started the practice from scratch in 1975, and in 1975 our office was state of the art with, you know, complete with the shag carpeting and the wood-paneled <laughs> wallpaper. Um, John kept up on the technology and he had this mm-hmm. really sort of unique boutique style to his practice where he spent a ton of time with each patient. He was known as the guy that found the MB2s. He was the person that anybody in industry, any dentist, that that's who you wanted to get your root canal from. And I heard that through a lot of people. That's part of what made me interested in working for John and learning from John was that he had this incredible clinical reputation. Um, the office, though, was very dated. <laughs> By the time I joined him in two thousand nine, he was super happy with it. He's like, "This was this is just the best place." You know, look at what look at this carpeting that I put in in nineteen seventy five. It was top of the line. So we moved the office in two thousand thirteen mm-hmm. to a brand new space that I created and sort of you know was what I envisioned myself um, having as. I guess the the physical reflection on the kind of practice John was doing. So John was doing really high-end endo with lots of technology, you know, really treating each patient as an individual. And so we wanted to make our office reflect that because the old space really was the thing that I always felt like I had to make excuses for and that I was embarrassed about.
0: And, you know, you talked about John finding, being famous for finding the MB2, but you're kind of become, a, you, you had your own accomplishments as you found the FE2. And I'm going to call that the female endodontist 2. So as, <laughs> and and, the, and actually you discovered recently, I think, the FE3 in Abby. So yeah. why don't, you, why don't yeah. you tell us about how, how Rebecca came on board and how that changed the practice and how that evolved not just in the physical aspect that we're talking about, but really the philosophy of moving from, you know, really John being the, you know, the foundational endodontist in the area, you coming on board, and then a while later bringing Rebecca. Tell us about how your relationship with Rebecca and how you met her and and went from there.
1: My meeting Rebecca was very organic. And again, one of those just easy things where we connected on, you know, such a immediate level, have similar goals, similar obsessions, but we balance each other really well. And it made us, you know, sort of naive to think that (laughs) this is always how you meet people. I wasn't looking for a female endodontist. I was looking for somebody as John sort of, you know, transitioned back to, he wanted to cut back his hours from four days to two days. Mm -hmm. I knew I never wanted to work alone. I knew we had too many patients for me to work alone. And so I had, I mean, this was part of the reason I justified my teaching obligations in Boston to my husband who just wanted to be in Vermont all the time and never leave and, you know, just, you know, ride bikes and ski all the time. Um, But I said, you know, I need this connection to Boston so that I could bring an associate up eventually. And so going down and teaching, I found Rebecca.
0: So you you said you found in her similar uh, goals and obsessions. what, What obsessions? What goals? What similarities do the two of you have?
1: We love clinical work, but clinical work is not enough for us. So we need something else on the side to keep our our minds active and I guess to just justify to us that we're still doing the right thing. We're we're nerds, we like school (laughs) to a similar degree. So we we enjoy teaching. I knew I wanted somebody that shared that love of teaching, which which John had but John didn't teach because he was stubborn about it, I think. Um, But Rebecca always wanted to go down and teach, had similar relationships with the same mentors that I had in Boston. And the two of us like research as well. So although we realize we can't really be clinical researchers living up here, we've tried a handful of projects and it's just, it's a struggle to do. And when you're in private practice and you're this removed from the physical dental school environment, Um, but we like to write and we have a similar style to writing review papers and Mm -hmm. we're both antsy people who don't sit still well and (laughs) so we just kind of like to distill the the research we both were really interested in getting board certified and I think that created this obsession with taking meticulous notes and making sure that we were up to date on the research and we just kind of kept going with it so, so you, that, are, you're, you are both
0: board certified
1: we are both board certified which Not in, in endodontics i think is really important
0: <laughs> and i have i have the book in front of me endodontic review a study guide by quintessence uh co-authored by brooke blitzer rebecca priles and Yarshan am i pronouncing that right yarshan Lin.
1: jarshan jarshan lynn
0: so this is uh, perfect for board review unless you're certain people <laughs> So there's a little there's <laughs> a little just
1: say <laughs> there was a little controversy. There's a little controversy. Yeah. So tell
0: so tell me about this. How do you you know, I get that you multitask, I get that you are go, go, go research writing, clinical teaching at two different dental schools. What in God's name inspired you to take on the task, you and Rebecca and Jarshan to take on the task of writing a textbook for board review?
1: Jarshan is a he's full-time faculty, so for him, it's an, it's an easy thing. And he was really the reason we were asked to do it. I'd co-written with him a chapter in a um, national board dental exam, I think part one review, the endodontic section. So we'd done some writing together before. And coming off of both of us taking our, our boards, I had just taken my oral boards, Rebecca had just taken her written boards. Jarshan was asked to write a board review by quintessence when we were at the endo meeting a few years ago in DC. And he said, well, I will, I can't write it by myself. Um, but I will write it. If Brooke will write it with me. And they said, okay. And then I said, Mm -hmm. well, I won't write it unless I can have Rebecca write it with me because she was (laughs) the one that was freshest off her boards. Um, and we had, we had notes and Rebecca and I are very similar we were very similar students in that we had pages and pages and pages of notes that we would just go through and organize. And it's one of our favorite things to do is just organize and kind of tighten up the writing. And that's how we memorize things. So we're similar learners, but we had between us over 200 pages of notes about evidence-based endodontics. And so it was actually a pretty easy yes for us to say okay, I, we already have the outline. All we have to do is make it into words, which is something that we find actually you know, sort of cathartic at the uh-huh. end of the day to, to just rewrite our notes. Um, so it was more work than, than just rewriting our notes as it turns out, but <laughs>
0: no. we got this
1: really cool souvenir at the end that is really fun when you're trying to explain something to a patient or to a colleague and you just say, oh, let me just pull my book out <laughs> and show you right here. Um, So we're, it came out, I think it was 2016. We are, we have due in May, the second edition. So it should be out in 2021, second edition updated. So not that the current version isn't pretty up to date, but things change in endodontics. There's a new journal of endodontics that comes out every month. There's the IEJ, there's... Um, triple O and E and or quadruple O and E I think it is now and JADA and JAMA and everything that we pay attention to and so by having a second edition that's forced us in the last couple of years to stay on top of things so we've had notes going um, mm-hmm. and then we've just been updating the text with there's 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 things that have changed really majorly like terminology and classification systems so so it'll be updated.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's funny when you said you got this really neat little souvenir. And I when I when I refer to the the two of you and they and I can see a, a new patient that maybe isn't familiar with your office and they'll 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 wonder, are they any good? Are they the best? And I'll say, well, you know, I'd like to say they wrote the book. And when I say that, they literally <laughs> wrote the book. I, I grab your book <laughs> off the shelf and I go, This is who you're going to see. And the the amount of comfort that that goes along with that when I when I see how much they relax and and uh, and know what kind of office they're ending up in is fantastic. I I do want to talk about the differences between you and Rebecca, but while we're talking about referrals, though, you I don't think of the two of you as endodontists. I think of you the you two as the Greatest resource and diagnostics that I've ever experienced in my career, and your amount of research and papers that you know in evidence base. But for you, what makes your referral base work? How you know? How do you see that happening? So I, I love the letters I get back from you. Your level of communication is better than anything I've ever experienced in dentistry. But how do you keep? Your referral base active and vibrant and interactive with with uh, all your efforts.
1: One of my one of our mentors and Rebecca and I share the same mentor at Tufts, Dr. Dan Green. He's just a fantastic clinician and teacher and person. But his advice to us, especially early in our careers, was always to get on the phone with people if we could. Not everybody wants to talk on the phone, but it made it a point early in my career, and John also did this. He, he emphasized this a lot, to get on the phone and develop a personal relationship with everybody that I'm working with. Because you say on, on one end it's nice to you know be able to show something to you know, give me some credit, you know, that, that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a reasonable person who, you know, should be able to take care of them. But I also need to reflect that back and let my patients know, I really respect the person that sent you over and we work together all the time and we're going to take care of you together because it's, it's not really just a one-way referral relationship. It's important for us to bounce that patient back and make sure that we've given the patient a really good experience. To make their dentist look good, that they sent us, they they sent them out to somebody who was competent and took really good care of them. And also, I know my endo is going to be more successful if it's restored really well. So I want to make sure that I have you know a, a good relationship and a lot of respect for the people that refer patients to me, because I know that you and Paul are going to put a fantastic crown on the tooth. And. I hate to say it, but there's the study out there that shows that you can have bad endo, good crown, and it's more likely to be successful than if you have good endo and a bad crown. Really? So, so nurturing—I'll send you the study. Of course. Um, you will. <laughs> nurturing, <laughs> nurturing that relationship is really important uh, from from both ends. Um, we, we value communication. You guys are great at sending over referrals and letting us know more than just the history. It's it's amazing. The number of referrals I get where it just says number 30 and it's sort of, you know, in some cases it's fun because we get to, you know, have no preconceptions going into the room and really get the whole story from the patient, but it's not super efficient because there are things that you've learned about these patients over years and years that are really helpful for me to know. I, you know, you'll, you'll send over. Little tidbits about this patient. Oh, they're brand new to my office, or they're you know coming back into dentistry. I think they're motivated. I think they're not. And you have creative ways of saying that in case the patient reads the the letter um, when <laughs> maybe quiet, it's a quiet. little negative. not my secrets <laughs>
0: away. Quiet, quiet. Um,
1: but <laughs> but it's it is really helpful for us to have that that information.
0: All right. So um, you know, we're both talk- in writing and by phone. We're talking about. You're bringing up ba- words. You're bringing up balance. You're bringing up efficiency. Okay, you do all these things that you do, and let's just take out the teaching, let's take out the publishing, let's take out the research. You are a full-time practicing clinician. You have the time to read these letters, you have the time to write these letters, you have the time to make these phone calls. Where do you find all of this time? I mean, how how do you make that happen in your daily practice? Because I... The, the level of communication that I get at, from your office is exemplary and it's constant. It's not just special occasion letters or I, I guess I could say special occasion calls. We don't get them every day. But how do you balance that with you don't just work with our office. You work with a lot of offices. How do you make your time work?
1: We have a fantastic team in our office and that really, really helps. We have yes, a couple of Ladies at the front in our front office and back office that um, are very good communicators and very, very organized and they keep us very organized and we have gone in the last Year or so to actually having them scribe for us and then they sort of generate reports that we read over. So there's some efficiencies that we have Where I'm not having to sit down at the end of the day and craft all of this from scratch. We have templates, but we have these really experienced um, three clinical staff that are writing notes for us.
0: Tell tell me a little bit more about them writing the notes for you, how does that scribing work? So so walk us through just a generic patient, and you don't have to go into all the case details, but just kind of give us the Mm -hmm. workflow of how that actually happens in your office.
1: So our notes are templated in a way that follows our examination, Uh, and Rebecca and I do, have the luxury of having trained at the same place. So we do things very similarly, uh, but we have three staff and it took us probably about three or four months to get them trained up to the level where they were comfortable doing this and we were you know, making a ton of corrections. But they sit with a laptop in the room uh, because it's a little awkward to have them on the actual clinical computer. Mm -hmm. That took us a little while to figure out. And they work from the template and they essentially just type in the details, you know, patient presented for and put the chief complainant in the patient's words. And I might change some of that. They're gathering a history. We're asking similar questions in endo uh when did the pain start you know has it increased decreased over time what are you doing to manage it what are things that mitigate your symptoms what are things that exacerbate them Um, we review a medical history and that's written down in the chart so while we're doing some of this conversing they're copying some of that information directly into the narrative when Mm -hmm. things are important like if there's an allergy to epinephrine i want to have that written in a hundred different places um from there we do a clinical exam that again is templated and though it's it's pretty easy. There's, you know, soft <laughs> tissue exam, hard tissue so. exam, pulp testing done. Um, we take a comb beam on most every patient. That's a whole, whole other conversation to have, but we have templated things that we're looking for that they fill in. And I just, I, I like to describe what I'm doing to the patient as part of a communication tool. So I'm talking the whole time anyway, I'm doing an exam. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that my assistants have to be guessing about. So I'm going over the combium image directly with the patient and my assistants are just writing down what I'm saying. Oh, there's a you know some apical PDL widening on the mesial root, there's a true lesion on the distal root, there's resorption, there's caries, we're going through everything that way um they really enjoy guessing on what the diagnosis is and they've gotten pretty good about (laughs) that so they put that part in and then it's you know we recommend a series of things we recommend treatment or not and in cases we recommend something crazy and then i'll have to fill that in and then a lot of that Data is just pulled out for the communication back to the general dentist.
0: So, do you? So, they're have, working on
1: that while I'm having the conversation with the patient. So,
0: do they, does the letter get actually written up from all that or is it auto generated? Do you have any type of software that's creating that?
1: It's just a template that we have from, um, we use PracticeWorks or SoftDent, which whatever you want to call it. Uh, but the the template's in there in the body of the same clinical note that we're putting in. And some of it we probably could increase efficiencies on and, and draw from that letter. But my staff are, I have a scribe that is dedicated each day. So we have two, clini- We if there's two doctors working, we have two clinical assistants. And then we have the scribe. And they are with Rebecca and I, both of them, most of the day. But they have this downtime while I'm sitting and talking with a patient and explaining what treatment is and why we're doing it and going through all the options. They have that time to put the letter together. I finish it up, you know, during my lunch or at the end of the day and mm-hmm. it goes out. So okay. We want to get letters out quickly as well.
0: So, so your letters are getting out lots of times just that same day. I mean, I, I, I know that you, you send them over and they're there and I'm looking at the date on it and it's the same, you know, it's the same day that you saw the patient. So I, I we, always... We really try. That. Well, you, you don't just try, you do. And w- when you're talking about, you know, these teams, these teams just don't happen. What, you know, what did you inherit as far as systems? What systems did you need to create? And, you know, and what challenges do you find in that? And how do you, I am and, how, and I'm gonna th- I'm gonna throw onto that whole stack is you know how do you create that amazing team that you're that you're bragging about?
1: Well, you you have a fantastic team, and I think I've copied a lot of what what you guys have done because we love we love you guys. I inherited some really fantastic people from John, and he, to this day, would still say Becky Woodbury, and I'll I'll use her full name there, is the best hire that he's ever made, followed, you know, and and sort of equally by Alyssa. Um, So we have two clinical staff that predated me in the office, and both of them started as assistants, and it sort of worked in different positions throughout the office, and they're just fantastically organized people. And, And Becky created a lot of the systems that we use in the office. Um, So I haven't had to reinvent the wheel as far as a lot of this goes. We have a team that's pretty dynamic and is able to move around with different things. John, despite starting his practice in 1975, was always really up for new technology and was a pretty early adopter of things. Mm -hmm. Though he personally never learned how to type, which (laughs) is always sort of funny.
0: I'm in that club.
1: Um, But (laughs) so... In hiring other staff members, of course, we've we've made some less good choices that we've had to move on from. Um, but we I mean, right now and, and that's that's what makes all the I don't I don't want to make this just a timely thing, but it makes the coronavirus stuff so difficult. I have such a great team right now that people are dealing with childcare issues and all of that. And I, I hope that everything stays cohesive when we're, when we're back at it. Um, but we've learned that it's more about the person rather than the skill set that they come in with.
0: Absolutely. Being an
1: ended honest, being a specialist in a small community, I can't poach staff from other offices. So there's that issue where I can't really hire people that have dental experience, because that means I'm either stealing from somebody and it's somebody good or I'm taking somebody else's problem. And to, give,
0: to give the listeners a little <laughs> idea of where we practice, we're three hours from Boston. We're five hours from New York City. We're four and a half hours from Montreal, depending on how fast you drive. The next largest town away from us is Concord or Manchester, which is a little over an hour, and they're not big towns. Hanover is 5,000. How large is Norwich?
1: Norwich I think is about 2000. I think the upper valley the the figure I've heard is 50,000 people and that includes probably 10 towns.
0: Yeah. So they they might be fairly some rural. of the sheep, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the There's more
1: more cows than people in Vermont aren't there?
0: I mean I moved to this area to because of this team, because of the team at Lime Road Dental because of, you know, Dr. Paul Lonsavage. And I remember meeting you uh, before that. And I remember, I think we went out to Salt Hill. I think it was the ski. We were going out for the Warren Miller ski thing. And the thing that really yeah. struck me when I came up here was not the amazing clinicians, and no, no offense to, to you and Paul and, and Roger and everyone else I met. It was the amazing teams that I met. And you're right, they're, they're family. And they come from such different skill sets. and several in our office had never worked in dentistry and it is amazing that what family they've become up here and with with the virus and everything mm-hmm. going on it is just incredibly hard right now
1: yeah well you don't get to see everybody every day that you're used to i mean we we spend more time with a lot of these people than we do with our families during the week yeah. and it's they 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 are people that we care about you know they're their friends and, and colleagues and family and children and everything all together,
0: well, we're, but
1: they…
0: We're textbook, text messaging and Facebook messaging with them this week. I think uh, this week we have a virtual cocktail party set up on a Zoom platform <laughs> where we're all going to get together with our glasses of wine or gin and tonics or beer or whatever, and uh, yeah, the message is we, we miss each other and we miss being in the office.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's a great idea. We've been doing similar things though. Haven't taken as far as happy hour. But perhaps we should.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the the first week the last week, the last ten days, it's it's been a blur of a whirlwind of how we've had to just adapt and go through the stages that I talked about uh in the in the Facebook Live that I did on on Ripe of the yeah. denial and the anger and the bargaining and the depression. And we're just all over the board on that.
1: Hmm. I think it changes hour by hour and day by day.
0: Yeah. Well, I just brought us down. I'm sorry about that, but that is the reality. <laughs> <laughs> that is the reality of this week. So, where? What are What are you doing to keep busy during this time? Aside from doing podcasts. Well,
1: (laughs) I am sending a lot of text messages to Rebecca. Um, We communicate mostly by text and I sit at my laptop and I just send her crazy things that I'm thinking of or emails that I've read or I've talked to you. I've talked to other dental colleagues of ours here and around the country. So I think this week has flown by with the distraction of all the logistics of everything. Mm -hmm. And we are still seeing a handful of patients, um, probably we average one or two a day in our practice. And just the logistics of figuring out like the PPE stuff has been really quite overwhelming. Um, Rebecca's also on the board of the Vermont State Dental Society, so she gets a little bit more detail. And so there's been a lot of ups and downs with that. I think as the, the next week or two, as we sort of settle into a rhythm, as long as things don't change, I have some things I'd like to do. I have that book draft I have to do in May, so I'm hoping I can get some work done on that. Um, my children are also home, and my husband is working from home, so I've been doing some homeschooling, which is, I, I can teach endo. I can't really teach <laughs> anything else are,
0: are as you, I'm are learning. You grooming a couple, are you grooming a couple of future endodontists there, you think?
1: I, I, I mean, I think that's probably actually what we should just start learning because my daughter's in kindergarten, so it's it's not really going to stick anyway. <laughs> <laughs> whatever whatever we spend our time doing is probably useful.
0: Nice. But we've
1: been, you know, spending a lot of time outside. I think it's it's amazing that there's so many people out exercising and walking during the day that I've just never seen before because everybody's, you know, at home.
0: Well, thankfully, the weather's been pretty nice. I know we have some snow coming up this week, but, uh, you know, it's it's... It could could be a worse time that uh, we couldn't get outside. Um, When we're talking uh, talking about, we touched on education. When we're talking about your daughter or, or our team members or ourselves, let's step into that side a little bit. Aside from your education at at Tufts and at Harvard, you also lecture all over the world, and you're you're doing the articles what's what's been fun what what's been going on with that what what have what has the last uh, little bit looked for you like for you and and aside from the virus what would you like to see coming up
1: so i honestly the last couple of months i have haven't done a ton of traveling for coronavirus reasons um but i also i have a newborn so i oh, had a baby in course. december so
0: Congratulations that limited some
1: of my travel thank you <laughs> but we we do want to do some more international programs. Harvard has some affiliates in Asia that we're, we've been in talks with that when all of this settles down, hopefully we'll be in Japan, hopefully we'll be in South Korea, hopefully we'll be in China doing some teaching over
0: there. And I'm thinking you could get an invite to Australia. I do have some connections down there. I know a guy. But uh, you. know
1: a guy. (laughs) I've met that guy. He's a great
0: guy. You have. (laughs) I think you, we had dinner at my house. uh, Was it last year? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we're going to have uh, ripe together uh, 2021 that is in the plans in New York City and and I would love to have you and Rebecca uh, down there. You do such a fantastic program again. You're you're certainly an endodontist, but when I go back to that, I think about the best programs that I've ever seen from from you and, and Rebecca is is the cracked tooth management and also the pain of non-odontogenic origins. So if if we talk about things that you you're passionate about teaching general dentists, and they a lot of them think, Oh, I want to take an endo program and all they're thinking about is how to do rotary or how to do warm vertical. If you could change that, what would what's your passion to share with general dentists about endodontics?
1: I I don't love teaching clinical endodontics because I think that a lot of it is very systems based, and well, you have to learn to use you know this instrumentation, this instrumentation. So when I'm talking about clinical endodontics, it's mostly about. Irrigation, you know, and the importance of irrigation and generalities. What I prefer, and Rebecca and I share this, what we prefer to teach is diagnostics because that's, I think, the most challenging part of dentistry and especially endodontics and also the most useful because we, if we have no business, if we don't know why we're doing the root canal, we shouldn't be doing the root canal. Um, So the diagnosis, but... With diagnosis, you have to learn about what's endo and what's not. So the the diagnosis of non-endo things, I think, is just as important as the diagnosis of endo things because we, we have to be able to make a differential. I love talking about generalities with diagnosis. I love talking about other things that cause pain. I love talking about resorption. I love talking about cracked teeth and trauma because I think these are things that we all encounter on a day-to-day basis that... We need to understand and be able to explain to our patients and and I think you know if you can explain it to somebody that means you really know it, and if you can explain it to your patient, then they're on board for whatever treatment you're going to recommend after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, if without, we can if we can get that stuff out.
0: Well, without turning this into a diagnostics lecture, uh, and I'd love to have you back for that and and get some things. Filmed for Ripe and for the Academy. What are some of the what are some of the blind sides that you see, or what are some of the um, more common misdiagnosis where some people would go to a file that is go to endodontic therapy when it's really something else? What are what are some of the things that you could share that we should look out for?
1: Resorption is something that is this real red herring that we find so much now that we have CBCT, and it's one of the reasons that I alluded to, we're doing cone beams on the majority of our patients, because it's probably, you know, maybe two or three times a month that I take a cone beam, and I do not expect to see resorption, and I do, and it may be the cause of the pain, it may not be, but it's an incidental finding that we want to know about, so that we can prepare a patient and say, this may happen down the line, this is something that we should be monitoring. But in the cases where it is the cause of the pain, it can really, really change your treatment plan and what you should be doing for this patient. So I think that's something that everybody kind of needs to be aware of. There are a million different types of resorption. The most common one is the external cervical form, and that's the one that we're seeing, you know, mostly as these incidental findings.
0: hmm how are you? Um, in, how are you differentiating? So when when you talk about that, where the pain may or may not be the resorption, where are the where are the the cutoffs between actually just addressing the resorption versus actually needing to proceed with endodontic therapy? If, if that's not too big of a question for a podcast.
1: No, I think that's a that's a it's a pretty straightforward one actually. So external cervical is externally derived. And unless it's fairly deep, in the majority of cases there's no pulpal involvement. You might create pulpal involvement by the time you treat it. And so sometimes the endo has to be done first. But with a comb beam, you can really define that very, very clearly. So if we're looking on a cone beam and we see that a lesion is, we call it class one and it's teeny tiny, then we can just treat that surgically or sometimes we don't even need to treat it surgically. We can pack a cord or sometimes they're even just clinically accessible. Um, and as long as the pulp has normal sensitivity responses, it responds normally to cold, it respo- you know, it has an uh, electric pulp test response in it, then we just treat the resorption. In the cases where an exposure is imminent or already has occurred, there may or may not be signs and symptoms of a pulpitis at that point, which we can tell based on cold testing. And if the if the patient's symptomatic, if they're cold hypersensitive, essentially, then we're obviously going to do the endo. If they have a normal cold response, then we can see, okay, there's going to be an, ex- an exposure. In some cases, we might be able to do vital pulp therapy. In some cases, just depending on the extent of that resorption and what else is going on with this tooth. That can get a little complicated. That's kind of a loaded question, but we, we may or may not need to do the endo. Very, how, very rarely is the pulp necrotic.
0: If I could back up to that, when you're talking about vital pulp therapy, how have your thoughts on that changed, say, in the last few years? In
1: the last year, they changed dramatically Let, with uh, the...
0: <laughs> go ahead.
1: Um, With the, the European group came out with a position statement on vital pulp therapy based on the bioceramic materials that have come out. So the bioceramic materials that have come out have shown us essentially that pulps can respond really favorably, even when there's a symptomatic carious exposure. If there's still vital tissue in that tooth, we can oftentimes get away with vital pulp therapy with a bioceramic material, as long as there's not Signs of apical involvement. This is not 100% successful. Um, I don't have the studies in front of me to quote numbers on it, but it's successful enough that it's oftentimes worth a shot for us to do vital pulp therapy. And this is a real paradigm shift from where we were two years ago, even. Two years ago, if there was a carious pulp exposure, whether or not there were symptoms, whether or not that pulp tested Differently on cold testing, we were recommending endo, and we are not now based on some really high quality studies that have come out and that European position statement.
0: What you know, I know that you know, I've known you, I think, for coming up on eight years, and when I knowing your history and how evidence based that you are, and uh. I'm I'm stumbling here a little bit. But as you accept this, what are some of the other things that you see as future treatments that you're not buying into yet, but you're sure hoping that have more evidence coming up?
1: There's so in general, and this is not just endodonist, I think dentists love technology and they love toys and things that cost money. And there's a lot <laughs> yes, of do. those in, in Endo. Not in Endo, there's a million and a half different file systems, obturation systems, sealers that are available, filling materials, core build-up materials, everything, that, and we're constantly marketed to. And there have been some interesting ones over the years that I've been sort of excited about, but there hasn't been enough evidence to justify their use or to say that they're safe. There was this really cool Chinese finger trap um, contraption coming out of Israel a couple of years ago that I was all excited about and disappeared. Um, but essentially, I'm sorry, it wait, was
0: Chinese finger trap.
1: <laughs> you remember those Chinese finger traps you put oh, your two yeah, fingers yeah, in little... and then pull? Yeah. So it was like a a grid system almost, and they had that for a, a file essentially that could go into the canal spaces and conform to whatever the natural tooth space was and clean it out. It disappeared. Something like that might be back at some point. Otherwise, there's not much as far as instrumentation that I've seen. Um, as far as obturation goes, bioceramic sealers are getting a lot of publicity and a lot of interest. I, ha- I haven't yet switched over to their use, not because I object and think that they're not safe, but. They're a little, the technique's just slightly different. They the, the results look a little bit different. They cost a little bit more money. I don't have proof that they're better than the epoxy resin sealer that I'm using right now. So I haven't been able to justify that change. Mm. But if, if studies come out that say that that stuff is better, I certainly will be. Um, as far as imaging goes, there's a lot of really exciting stuff with imaging. We, obviously the, the comb beam was something that I, didn't train on. And we got our machine in 2014 and never looked back. But there's some exciting stuff with comb beam technology where the computer software should be able to do more for us in the future. We should be able to get radiation dosages low um, or lower than they are because they're already pretty low. Mm -hmm. There's talk of using MRI in dental imaging, which is really exciting because that would be non-ionizing radiation and Mm -hmm. patients would love that. I'd love to offer that because Especially practicing in Vermont, people are creeped out by everything, well, and an they hate radiation.
0: have an amazing dance beat too: "Dun, dun, dun." Right. <laughs> <is in> <laughs> different lots of stuff on the horizon lots of good stuff you got some scary stuff too i think we're just you know wrapping up in time i want to thank you so much for joining us tonight i look forward to having you on actually some lectures uh, maybe some more podcasts having rebecca on but thanks so much for joining us and i hope you have a wonderful evening
1: thanks so much mike and thank you guys
0: for listening take care you too bye-bye Thanks for joining us this week on the RIPE podcast. We've teamed up with mentors from around the world to offer you a growing library of high quality online educational lecture recordings and resources. Visit our Academy website, www.RestoringExcellence.com.au forward slash Academy, and become a premium member today. Become better at dentistry and be sure to tune in in two weeks time for our next episode of the RIPE podcast.